Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. It is my privilege to introduce Joe Nocera, who is here in the studio with us. He is a Bloomberg View columnist, a longtime New York Times business columnist who I have respected for many, many years. Uh, and Joe, you wrote a column this week talking about... Uh, Wait a minute. Can I just bask in that intro for a minute? Please, go ahead. Okay. Would All you right. like to... Would you, uh, have, you done, have you done bask? Okay, You've I'm done basking? Okay. Yeah, we move quickly here. <laughs> the future um, already happened somewhere. No, so you wrote a column about uh, President Trump's pick for uh, the Health and Human Services uh, post, and you were talking about this man, Tom Price, and some of his decisions with respect to his stock trades. Uh, can you outline kind of what is the controversy here and and kind of give us your take on it. Sure. Uh, Well, I mean, the controversy is, uh, revolves around, you know, whether in one particular case uh, he bought the stock of a company, uh, then introduced legislation uh, that would help the company, and then uh, the company gave him a campaign contribution of $1,000. I I actually think in that particular case... uh, He's he's telling the truth when he says my broker did it. Whether he knew about it or not, I really don't know. But to me, the larger issue, the more important issue is that here's a guy who um, both sits on an important health subcommittee and introduces lots of legislation on behalf of uh, pharmaceutical and medical companies and has no compunction about picking up the phone and calling FDA or another agency on behalf of a medical company. Owning a bunch of medical stocks and pharma stocks. He doesn't just own this one. It's, he's, he owns Amgen. He owns Pfizer. I can't remember the other ones. But he owns like a dozen. And to me, that, while is not illegal, it is unethical because it creates this uh, enormous conflict of interest with him knowing that he's got he, – he's going to make money. He's got information in his head that in effect is inside information – which is, I'm going to introduce a piece of legislation. I'm going to make this phone call. And yet he has these companies in his portfolio. It's not right. I just want to push back on you, just not on the concept of whether it is right or not, and not whether it is legal or not. But given the complexity and the uh, well, he's a uh, orthopedist, right? Uh, that's I believe, right, he right, is. Mr. That's right. Mr. Price. He's an orthopedist, so he comes with whatever knowledge that would uh, bring to the position of being a congressman and perhaps a cabinet secretary. In that case, when he comes with that level, let's say, scientific expertise, Mm -hmm. uh, is that the same expertise that you want to be able to call on if someone is in that role? Or are you saying that the role itself has its own requirements? I I think it's great that there are doctors in Congress. You know, and he does have expertise and he does have, you know, sympathies towards the needs and plight of doctors. There's nothing wrong with that. All I'm saying is that if health is your primary area in Congress and you're sitting on subcommittees and you're filing legislation, you shouldn't have health stocks in your portfolio. You can have any other kind of stock, but you shouldn't have health stocks. I mean, one of the points I made in the column was, you know, if you're a journalist covering health care, 
at Bloomberg or the Times or the Wall Street Journal or anywhere, you can't have health care stocks because it's a conflict of interest. Why is it different for a congressman who actually has a lot more uh, ability to move a stock than a journalist does? Well, but I thought that in 2012 uh, there was a law uh, that stripped Congress members from their immunity from insider trader right. laws. Right. So why wouldn't Tom Price be potentially susceptible to uh, violating that? Okay, there, there, there are basically two reasons. Uh, the first reason is that he says that his broker bought the stock and his broker has um, discretion, uh, discretion over his account. So that's, uh, you, I mean, you can't be, um, as long as he didn't make a phone call to the broker saying buy the stock, then it's not insider trading. He's okay there. But the second reason is, even though they passed that law, Congress has made it almost impossible for the SEC to carry out any insider trading investigations of anybody in Congress, including staff members. They're, try they're, they're, in a, they're in a current situation where there's a staff member the SEC is trying to investigate, and Congress is basically blocking it. How? Basically just saying don't continue with it? Yeah, they're just saying we won't give you access to the guy. We won't give you his records. I mean, you know, blocking it. It, it's really an unbelievable situation. So they're basically saying that the law doesn't give the SEC the right to investigate inside members, of trading members in of Congress. Congress. Member, yeah, even though the law basically says it's illegal for members of Congress to be inside to to, to trade on inside information. Uh, you look a little stunned. I am. <laughs> <laughs> but but can, can we just? I don't want to defend anyone's behavior or so on, but I want to just see if we can get to a, 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 another point, which I think you raise, which has to do that this is not something that is particular to Mr. Price. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, no, Congress not, has a right. long and, in many cases, revered history of uh, malfeasance or uh, yes. various kinds of uh, unethical or deemed right. unethical behavior, Right. right? Yes. I mean, I think if you looked at most of these guys' stock port portfolios, the ones who have stock portfolios, I think you'd find probably very similar things. And and let's let's be clear here. I mean, but the reason I, the reason I asked about whether the the technology and the the world has changed so profoundly that it is going to be very difficult to find people who do not have these kinds of associations at the higher level of government or indeed in business. And uh, indeed, I think you just uh, see that with uh, Gary Cohn, who formerly was of Goldman Sachs and now is the head of the Council of Economic Advisors. Right, and, and uh, he probably won't have a stock portfolio. Well, but he benefited I mean, I, I, in other ways. Okay, I, I just there's nothing wrong with owning stocks, obviously, but uh, is it really too much to ask of a of a public servant, especially somebody like Tom Price, who's very wealthy, to not have healthcare stocks in his portfolio? He's got lots of other stocks. If he really does have a broker who has discretion over his account, that the broker can say, "I'll get anything except healthcare stocks." I don't I understand why that's such a giant sacrifice, and I don't think it is that big a sacrifice. What's been their response? Uh, I, you know, his, well, in in the um, in the uh, confirmation hearings, he has, you know, insisted again and again that he's acted quote unquote transparently and ethically, um, and you know, they only have five minutes to question him, so they really don't have a lot of time to to to. to have you spoken down. with him or met with him? Uh, no, I, ha I have I haven't spoken with him. I've called his office a few times. I've gotten the statements from, but the statements basically say the same thing that he acted ethically. Well, maybe we'll see. Maybe there'll be a follow-up to all of this. Uh, well, I plan to have one actually uh, online this afternoon sometime. Oh, we're going to look forward to that. Well <laughs> done. All right. See, that's why he's got to run. 
Jonas Sarah, thanks very much for being with us and welcome. A Bloomberg View a columnist talking about Congress and malfeasance. This is Bloomberg. Jamie, Jamie Butters, Butters, yes, a U.S. autos reporter for Bloomberg, uh, to talk about why this might not be the best time for uh, automakers to invest billions of dollars in new plants. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Jamie. Um, so you wrote a story that was really compelling. Uh, have auto companies already been investing a lot of money, or is it just that they've been uh, in sort of a uh, general stripping down of their dependence in the, on, on big plants? Uh, hey, good morning. Uh, so, you know, first day, as you recall, in uh, 2008, 2009, there was a terrible calamity in the financial industry and in the uh, in the real industry, in the you know manufacturing industry. So GM and Chrysler went bankrupt. The industry really shrunk down. And since then, they've rebuilt, but mostly through, uh, you know, rebuilding, retooling the plants that they kept and it really shrunk down to something that could be manageable. They got flexible labor contracts. So much like Dow at 20,000, I mean, the auto industry has been growing now for a record seven straight years. We're at record highs, and the plants are all running, you know, pretty full. But there's not a lot more growth left. There's not, uh, no one really believes that we're going to grow from 17.5 million up to 20 million annual sales a year. So, you know, they, they just don't need more plants. <laughs> they, we've, we've got all we need. And there, there's some in construction around in the U.S., in the South, uh, and some in, uh, you know, Fiat has announced, you know, they're kind of adjusting their production. They've stopped making cars. They're reinvesting in the pickups and SUVs. Uh, but Mexico has been getting a lot of growth. And the funny thing is, it's not – Mexico is not gaining at the U.S.'s expense particularly, aside from – and there was this case Ford was going to, you know, move their small car plant or move their small car production to Mexico and, you know, build the SUV plant here in, in Michigan. But mostly what Mexico is getting is uh, production that has been done in Europe and in Asia. So it's, you know, we've had NAFTA for 23 years, and that's the way the industry is kind of built. So we don't really need more capacity right now unless things really change dramatically. Hey, Jamie, uh, could you just sort of draw us a, a map, a visual map of maybe like how the the flow of automobiles works in the world? You know, uh, for example, you know, Canada and the United States, I mean, they are intertwined. Uh, you have imports, you have a lot of uh, foreign companies that are based here in terms of their production now. Maybe you could just give us a picture so that we can put that in our mind. Yeah, well, it really is. Canada, the U.S., and Mexico are are deeply intertwined. And so, you know, if you just go by the national borders, right, we import, Americans import about seven and a half million vehicles a year, uh, but almost half of that is from Canada and Mexico. Uh, so it's really a, like a continental market for the most part. Uh, at least that's the way the industry sees it. That's the way they make their investments because that's the way – uh, the the trade alliances are set up. So, I mean, the big issue, you know, it's like what we're finding with Trump, right, is that you, you have to take him seriously, but you can't take him literally. So he says we need more. He wants more plants in the U.S. And he talked about making permitting easier. You know, permitting is not a real big problem for the automakers. <laughs> if they want to build a factory, 
there are states and communities lining up to uh, invite their one to two billion dollar investments. You know, but you know the real the key issues, and this is what we still don't know about the auto industry under Donald Trump is is tariffs. You know, what is this NAFTA renegotiation going to do? Are we going to have a big border tax? Uh, because if we do, that's going to really dramatically increase costs for consumers. It might spur some factory building in the U.S., but it's also going to really reduce sales. It's going to raise prices, and uh, that would be very curious. And then the other big one is, is fuel economy. The fuel economy rules uh, CAFE and whether California can continue to demand uh, that automakers make offer electric vehicles, sell electric vehicles that most Americans don't really want to buy. And so those are the two big levers that are just kind of that are out there and yet to be determined. What is the new EPA going to be like? What is this new NAFTA going to be like? And until then, you know, everyone's making nice. They're, the automakers, U.S. automakers know how to wave the flag. You know, when they do a deal with the UAW, you know, they know how to go out and announce all the investments that they're making and say how proud they are to be investing in America. But ultimately, they answer to their customers who want good cars at good prices, and to their shareholders who expect them to make money. Right. Jamie Butters, thank you so much for joining us. It's a compelling look at why U.S. autos uh, automakers may not have the incentive to build more plants in the U.S. Jamie Butters, U.S. auto reporters for Bloomberg. like a lot of companies are looking to build in the U.S., not necessarily just U.S. companies. We got news that Foxconn, Taiwanese manufacturer, is looking to uh, potentially build a business in the U.S. that would employ up to 50,000 people. I want to bring in Tim Culpin, my fellow Gadfly columnist covering technology uh, at Bloomberg. And Tim, uh, First, I just should say that Foxconn has peddled back some of its uh, pledge to create 50,000 U.S. jobs and said that it's more of a a wish than a promise. But uh, what would this mean for the U.S.? Would this be a benefit for the U.S. economy? Well, any job would be a benefit for the U.S. But, you know, let me just say one thing from the very start. Foxconn never made that commitment about 50,000 jobs. They never said $7 billion. That was Masayoshi son of SoftBank who did that. He kind of went off the reservation and spoke on behalf of Foxconn without Foxconn actually ever giving out that number. So it was Masa, not Terry Gore. And this has been misunderstood very widely as if it's Foxconn's plan. Foxconn followed up by saying, we're looking into possibly maybe investing in the US. So Foxconn has never committed to any kind of investment in the US. Just just real quick, what's the relationship between SoftBank and Foxconn? Uh, the, the chairman of both companies are good mates. They've done co-investments together, including with Alibaba on the, uh, the Pepper robot project. Uh, they talk a lot. Uh, Terry Gore of Foxconn looks up to two key men in the world, and that is Jack Ma of Alibaba, Masayoshi Son of SoftBank. So, uh, you know, my understanding is they talk regularly, and it may be out of that that there was this, you know, talk or misunderstanding. But really, Foxconn has never made this pledge, and a lot of people need to be aware of that. Now, moving on to your second question, of course, any job uh, creation would be great for the U.S. Uh, naturally, but the idea of creating thirty to fifty thousand jobs really is a wish more than any kind of promise, because you've got to look at a lot of things. First of all, the U.S. has fantastic technology. If we look about what what they're talking about here, which is LCDs, one of the best and biggest makers is is Corn. 
morning they do a lot of the glass, uh, the, the Gorilla Glass. They are fantastic at that. But you know what? They don't actually have a glass factory for LCD panels in the US. They don't. It's all in China where the manufacturers are, where the, where the end users are. They'd be willing to open one in the US, but they don't have it here now. The infrastructure, the supply chain does not exist in the US now. It would be great for the US if that could all be built out, but it's not here and it would take many, many, many years because it's been built out in China over 10, 20, 30 years and it's not all suddenly going to rush to the U.S. now because the president says, I'm going to raise import tariffs and try and promote jobs. It's going to be a very slow process. And Foxconn is in many ways constrained by that. Even if they wanted to open a factory tomorrow, they need to have everybody else part of that. And the second thing is Foxconn needs incentives. They need tax breaks. They need land. They need all sorts of other things. If some state in the U.S., like, say, Pennsylvania, who they're talking to, is willing to offer that, Foxconn will come in, they'll talk about it. But it's really going to be out, come down to one thing, show me the money. And that's what Terry Gore will be saying to everybody he meets, show me the money. And what do you think he's going to hear? I think he's going to hear a lot of ideas of what can you do for me, uh, how many jobs can you create, what do I need to do for you. It'll be this back and forth. It'll be a negotiation. And, uh, and you know, Terry Gore is a great negotiator, so he'll get the best deal he can. Why is Foxconn wishing for this job creation if there isn't the supply chain? Well, it comes down to his key client, which is Tim Cook at Apple, right? Uh, Foxconn's been working with Apple for many, many years. And one thing to know about Foxconn is that they are very, Tell, tell very... people if they have an, an Apple device, how much, just to give an idea of what Foxconn does for their Apple device. Well, not just Apple devices. Yeah, but, okay. uh, but, so yeah. 50% of Foxconn's revenue comes from assembling iPhones, right? So it's it's the end part where you put all the parts together. But then a lot of the stuff inside an iPhone or inside an iPad, inside a Mac, inside a Dell PC, inside an HP server, inside a Cisco router, that's all Foxconn. Foxconn is everywhere. It is everywhere. It's most famously in the iPhone, but they really are in every electronic device. There is not a single person on the planet who doesn't have an electronic device that doesn't have something Foxconn in it. That's a major accomplishment so, from their perspective. But, it is. But so going back to the idea of why they would want to be here, it would simplify possibly uh, the supply chain if they had uh, plants here, correct? That's the idea? It would make Tim Cook happy. That's what it would come down to. And the reason why I say that is that they did the same thing in Brazil. Foxconn went to Brazil. They started making iPhones in Brazil because Brazil raised tariffs by a lot. And Apple needing to get around those tariffs, I think it was 30%, I'm not exactly sure the tariff rate, they needed these devices to be made in Brazil. So Foxconn said, fine, you're my customer. You want me to open up in Brazil? I'll do that. You, you pay me money, uh, I'll, I'll open up wherever you like. So it'll really come down to Tim Cook, Apple, and other customers. It could be Dell or HP or anyone else saying to, te to Terry Gore, look, I need you to do something here. I need you to assemble here or have a factory or some kind of supply here. And Terry Gore will listen. But it'll really come down to the clients like Apple that will make it happen. And it's going to come down to you keeping us all informed. That's really great. Really wonderful perspective and detail. Uh, Tim Culpin is a Bloomberg Gadfly columnist. He covers technology uh, as well as, well, geez, just about anything else on the planet that you would care to know about. Well, 
um, you know, it's interesting when you speak about uh, education, you think about a younger cohort in the population, uh, for example, the millennial population. Ron Williams is the former chairman and the chief executive of Aetna. He's also the current chairman and chief executive of RW2 Enterprises, and he knows a thing or two about this $18 trillion economy. Ron Williams, thank you very much for being with us. Well, thank you very much, Pam, and thank you, Lisa, for having me. Is, is that a decent introduction in, in the sense of what, you know, the topic that you can speak to uh, professionally and with your ex experience of analyzing this? Tell us, who are these people? Where do they come from? And what are they going to be spending their money on? Well, I think the, I would start with kind of what prompted the, the study. I spent a lot of time with CEOs and C-suite executives who were really struggling with how do they develop the millennial leaders who will, in fact, inherit our $18 trillion economy as senior executives in major corporations. So the study was really about millennial executives and what will it take in order to create the next generation. It really didn't look at it from a consumer purchasing point of view. Ron, I, I got to push back a little bit. A lot of one complaint by millennials is we're not a monolithic group. It's not as if, you know, every millennial has the same ethos. Do you think that there is enough of a tying link in the millennial generation to really make these sort of sweeping statements? Well, I would agree 100% that much of what we hear about millennials is myth and opinion, and that's one of the reasons we decided to conduct a very rigorous study of over 3,000 uh, participants in major corporations, um, starting with the C-suite and involving many uh, millennial leaders and actually conducting follow-on focus groups. So I think our findings are research-based, and they really are focused on the millennial leadership cohort. Ron, I, I hope that can you. I'd like you to share some of the results of the study. I think they're they're really very fascinating. But I just also want to make a note that you are also the vice chairman of the conference board, uh, and uh, based in Boca Raton, Florida. But I, I just uh, thought this was an interesting. If you could just give us some of the highlights that you came away with. Sure. Well, I think one of the things that was absolutely surprising was that forty three percent of m m millennial leaders are planning to stay at their company for 15 years or more. We hear a lot about job hopping, and we were really surprised to see that this cohort of leaders was really looking at having a long-term relationship with the companies they were employed by. And that's surprising because people had this impression that uh, millennials were flighty and, and willing uh, to go away. What are the sort of practical implications of some of the results that you found from the study? Well, I think the practical implications are that uh, the companies have to really invest in this cohort and that the developmental path for these young leaders will be very different. They much more value real-time feedback and real-time coaching than they do the annual performance review. They also are much more experientially oriented, job rotation, different assignments, and surprisingly, they were very interested in regular and steady progression. While they're not big on hierarchies, they themselves want to be promoted and recognized. So I think the implications are really for the developmental programs and leadership development programs that companies have. I thought also was interesting in this study is that you describe them as placing less value on open workspaces than chief executives perceive 
that they do. And I thought that was uh, interesting because that is a a kind of almost a a, a scenic or Hollywood-like image now about the open environment and so on, uh, about working and without uh, offices. Uh, I wonder if you could speak to that because that's something everyone faces every day, whatever kind of office space they're in, a cubicle or open plan. Yes, it was one of the most surprising uh, comments that we received is that they value the opportunity to collaborate in teams, and they believe there ought to be workspaces where groups can come together and have very impromptu conversations. But they also believe that this low open environment inhibits uh, creativity and inhibits an ability to focus on the task at hand. So I, I think like many things, uh, trends move in one direction perhaps too far and then need to move back. So I think, I think my counsel would be to look at a combination of open spaces with lots of opportunity for people to cluster in small groups and even have private workspaces where they can, in fact, concentrate and have some privacy. Ron, I, I don't mean to shift away from this uh, completely, but I do want to get your take. Uh, you said on the on the board or your director at American Express, the Boeing company, Johnson & Johnson, uh, Envision Healthcare. You have been in uh, corporate America for a very long time. It's in senior positions. And uh, a few weeks ago, we had Ira Milstein on. He's a senior partner at Weil Gottschall. And he was talking about how there isn't accurate or correct oversight over some of the boards. There aren't necessarily the right incentives to making uh, good long-term decisions. Do you agree with that? Well, I, I think it's very easy to generalize. I can only speak to my experiences. And I think the, I'm, I feel fortunate the boards I'm involved with have have a very good balance of senior executives, diverse executives, both by gender and ethnicity, and executives who really, really engage in a very focused way and take their responsibility of representing the shareholders very serious. Ron Williams, uh, you must, of course, uh, be following uh, the transition uh, from one administration uh, to another and uh, the emphasis of President Trump uh, on uh, business issues. What business issues do you think affect the millennial leaders the most right now? Well, I think the millennial leaders are uh, watching closely uh, the whole question of the job creation and the degree to which the companies they're involved with may very well begin to take different strategies. Uh, As you know, corporations forward plan quite some time. And I think companies are trying to understand what are the policies regarding trade, what are the, 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 the policies regarding job creation, tax structure, and how that will affect the employment opportunities and the skill mix that companies are going to have. Thank you so much. Ron Williams, the former chairman and CEO of Aetna and the current chairman and CEO of RW2 Enterprises on how millennial millennials are just like us. <laughs> they're just going to uh, look for steady uh, promotions and they're looking for to be at companies for a long time. Uh, and they might still buy automobiles and they might still buy homes. Yeah, and they still care about taxes. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.